chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. When When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And together we pray. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Well, uh, kia ora Fano. How are we going this morning? It's good to see you and uh, also um, great for those uh, tuning in uh, this morning online or um, this afternoon or in the evening, whenever you're choosing to watch this, of course. Uh, I do hope you've had a great uh, weekend. It's been a really uh, significant one for uh, our family. We've been celebrating our eldest daughter, Lily's uh, third birthday. So I still feel like I'm kind of coming off the sugar high. So if, uh, if the words come out a little bit faster than they normally do this morning, then um, that's why maybe I might end up crashing and writhing on the floor um, in a fit of t- flood of t- floods of tears. Uh, if that happens, don't be surprised. Uh, it's just what I've seen over the last sort of 24 hours. Um, hey, uh, aside from your own birth, of course, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in the room for a birth. Uh, the St. Org's breeding program is running pretty hot right now, so the chances are pretty high that you have uh, been in the room. And maybe the mums will correct me after the service, but uh, to my mind at least, and I, I think I'm in safe territory here, um, the, the, the idea of being in the room for a birth is, is the sort of thing that can really only be described as utterly remarkable and truly sacred. Utterly remarkable and truly sacred. So uh, this morning we are in the early section of the book of Acts, And uh, this text, which we've just heard uh, Joe read for us this morning, is part of a very significant day in the life of the church. It's the day when the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descended in dramatic fashion and utterly remarkable and truly sacred things happened, giving way to the birth of the church. And then, of course, there's the first sermon. Peter's first sermon, he j- jumps up and suddenly the church changes from 120 followers to over 3,000 followers. Uh, even by new standards, that is a good sermon. 
And uh, we're dropping in right at the end, the tail end of Peter's talk uh, in verse 37 where we read, When the people heard this, which is Peter's sermon, uh, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The people who had gathered basically were saying, this is legit, we're into this, uh, but what should we do now? How should we respond? To which Peter replies, repent and be baptized. Go Jack and Ezra, you guys are onto it. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter warns them and pleads with them in verse 40 to do one more thing. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This is the climax of his message. This is where it's all heading. And uh, he's saying, save yourself from your corrupt, corrupt generation. Or as old mate Eugene Peterson uh, describes it in the message translation of the Bible. I love this message. He's, he's pretty sensitive with these things. He says, get out while you can. Get out of the sick and stupid culture. That's how he puts it. So um, this, this corrupt generation language which uh, Peter uses is, is referencing back to the Old Testament. It's referencing back to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and it's describing the generation of Israelites who had been miraculously rescued from slavery, led out of slavery in Egypt, and were embarking on the short walk towards the promised land. Uh, they're right on the edge of life as it should be. And... Uh, they rebel. We know the story. As a result, what should have been perhaps a seven-day walk ends up being a 40-year wandering in the wilderness. Enough time for an entire generation to fade away and for a new generation to emerge and enter into the land of promise. Now, when we think about generations in terms of social science, uh, we understand a generation to be uh, a, a birth cohort of people who coexist in a particular time and place and therefore share the same generation-defining moments, as well as other shaping influences, of course, things like parenting trends, economic conditions, uh, technology advancements, those kinds of things, uh, all of which lead to forming the forming of similar characteristics, preferences, and values over a lifetime. And as we all know, every generation has uh, its own certain reputation. So I thought we could have a quick look at the current six generations that make up society, just to see what we're talking about, what we're working with here. So the first, uh, first generation, I'm just going to move to the side here a little bit, uh, is uh, the traditionalists. And uh, maybe make some noise if you're born pre-1945. That's a little bit unfair, because this generation is also uh, called the silent generation. Um, so they're to be seen and not heard. Um, good to see the trads living into their name. Um, and then we have the baby boomers. Um, all right, boomers, why don't you st we need you to actually stand up. Can you stand up? Come on, come on. We want to have a good look at the hippies of the 60s who became the yuppies of the 80s and who are now many of our esteemed leaders. All right, you can sit down. It's not actually all about you. But whatever you do, please don't tell us how much you, your first house cost. 
Um, and then we've got uh, Gen X. We've got our Gen Xs. And uh, sometimes this generation is described as the overlooked middle child between the boomers and the millennials. So we're going to be offering prayer ministry for Gen X um, down, down the front straight after the service. Um, but not that you actually really care because you've discovered this thing called work-life balance. There we go. That's your contribution. Well done. Um, then we've got uh, Gen Y, all the millennials, um, who, of course, enjoyed, um, I say, our smashed avocado on toast this morning and um, posted it on, on our latest Instagram story. Then we've got uh, the Gen Z or Centennials. Um, so, guys, don't just raise your hand. Raise your phone. Because you guys are legit. You guys are the first generation to... Well, you're, you're, you're born digital. That's the way they, they say it. You guys are um, the first generation to grow up with smart hands. So... That's pretty awesome. And then there's Generation Alpha, who uh, post-2012, so again, go Jack, go Ezra, and the other three quarters of St. Augustine's. <laughs> so there we have it. The point to all of this, uh, because we primarily coexist with people in our generation, our peer relationships become a web of, often unwittingly, uh, which reinforce our entire belief system and way of being in the world. And maybe just to focus in on uh, my generation for a moment, the millennials, you'll notice the irony of me wanting to talk about my generation. Um, but I'm keen to hear from the room, hopefully you're up for this, uh, what are millennials known for? Apart from the Avo and Toast, that's, that's all good. What's our reputation? What's the negative press um, about the millennials? Anyone want to shout something out? Snowflakes. Snowflakes. There we go. Is that the colour of the hair? Is that kind of... Sorry, I missed that. Consumerism. Consumerism. Love it. Anyone else? Anyone else got, got another couple of words? Millennials, what are, we, what are we about? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't hear. Entitled. Entitled. Yeah, that's a, that's a classic. I think that we definitely carry that reputation. I've got um, lazy, anxious, and then there's a couple of good ones, I think. I think tolerant, open-minded, and ambitious. That's at least what Google told me. Um, so... Uh, so there's a lot that's been written about the millennial generation, which of course we love. Um, but uh, one author, Jean Twenge, in her book, Generation Me, and I promise this, this book title is not going to be up there for very long, uh, why today's young Americans are more confident, assertive, entitled, and more miserable than ever before. She argues that uh, the emphasis on self-esteem that began in the 70s went uh, way overboard creating an extreme form, uh, among many, no one in this room, of uh, narcissism, uh, where individuals are, quote, overly focused on themselves and lack empathy for others. So uh, one of the central tendencies of my generation, the millennials, is that we put ourselves first, above all things, which leads to this unparalleled freedom, but it also creates an enormous pressure to stand alone. And as a result, we all know uh, the stats which tell a devastating story about the high rates of depression and anxiety amongst Generation Me. So when Peter, he says, save yourselves from the corrupt generation, this is the kind of culture he's talking about. Every generation has their brokenness. But this is a, a generation that promises you are progressing toward the land of milk and honey but leaves you obsessed with yourself and wandering in the wilderness, trying to make sense of things over an entire lifetime. 
But to be a Christian means that you are reborn through the waters of baptism into a new generation, an alternative generation that isn't defined by time and space, but rather is a family made up of multiple generations. And it was so great, wasn't it, to welcome um, Jack and Ezra into the whanau this morning. See, to be a Christian is to re-examine everything. Peter is saying you must re-examine the infrastructure of your soul and the cultural assumptions that you've bought into. Don't be susceptible to what defines your generation. Save yourselves from it. And this, I think, is a very real problem for us. I don't know if you feel it. Because we cannot, of course, uh, be formed apart from or outside of uh, both the goodness and the brokenness of our own generation. Peter is not saying we should separate ourselves and cut ourselves off from the rest of the world, nor is he saying we should assimilate with our generation or even try to triumphantly save it or change it. In other words, if you are a Christian... It doesn't mean you are not, sorry, if you are a, in other words, yes, in other words, if you are a Christian, it doesn't mean that you are no longer a citizen of New Zealand. It means you are a different kind of New Zealand citizen. It doesn't mean that you are no longer a business owner or employee or student. It means you're a different kind of business owner, employee or student. Peter is saying we should humbly see ourselves as part of what God is doing here in Tamaki Makoto by establishing a new generation of healing and hope in our city. This is new creation right in the midst of the old. The church isn't a club. We're not a club. It's a whole new people, an alternative way of being human together in the world and for the world. Now, this, of course, uh, I think raises some pretty big questions. One being, how do we save ourselves? How, do we, how are we formed in ways uh, of the new generation uh, rather than the old generation? And the next few verses, uh, they, they describe uh, really what we're going for here. Um, it's the strategy both for the early church and it's the, both the strategy uh, for us here today. And I think it can be summarized in these six words. Practicing the way of Jesus together. Practicing the way of Jesus together. Uh, these next few verses, they describe uh, the early church empowered by the Holy Spirit to practice the way of Jesus together, continuing his very presence upon the earth. That's the strategy to get our old generational slavery out of our system. And in verse 42, we encounter this important word, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. In the Bible, this word devote means to give something away. It's the same as our, as our English word, really. To devote means you give something away. And that's why in some translations, that is how it's translated. They gave themselves. They gave themselves to four specific practices. And these are the very same practices that we uh, base and form our formational communities on here at St. Augustine's. They devoted themselves or gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, which is really just a continuation of Jesus' teaching. Uh, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, 
They devoted themselves to fellowship, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And here's the thing that I love about the power of practices. The things we do repeatedly do something to us. The things we do repeatedly do something to us. So what does devoting ourselves to Jesus' teaching do to us? Devoting ourselves to Jesus' teaching slowly but surely frees us from our culturally prized control of needing to be the ultimate authority and scriptwriters of our own story. And it refurnishes our imaginations for another way, the possibility of a future world breaking into our present world. What does devoting ourselves to fellowship do to us? Devoting ourselves to fellowship uh, slowly but surely frees us from the culturally prized autonomy by connecting us into the beauty and the mess of family life. And it saves us from the all too real temptation of using others to elevate our standing in the world. What does devoting ourselves to the breaking of bread do to us? Devoting ourselves to the breaking of bread slowly but surely frees us from our cultural tendency to manage our self-made and self-kept reputations as we find ourselves with a seat at the table alongside beggars and billionaires alike. And it repeatedly reminds us that life is fed, nourished, and built on the pervasive grace of God's downside-up kingdom. And finally, what does devoting ourselves to prayer uh, do to us? Devoting ourselves to prayer slowly but surely sets us free from our cultural tendency to perform to receive love as we find ourselves held securely by the hands that bear the wounds of unconditional love. And it forms in us a life that is open and connected to the source of all life. Can you see the significance of uh, why the early church might want to practice these sorts of things? Can you see the significance of why we're still going for the very same things some 2,000 years on? So they devoted themselves to these four practices. Uh, But that's not all. They seem to do all of this stuff together. Uh, Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another, to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This is the complete reverse of the millennial stereotype. This is uh, self-focused individualism completely uh, flipped on its head. At the beginning of uh, last year, Newt and I received an email from a wonderful person here at St. Augustine's uh, who wanted to share um, what she felt the Spirit was doing and up to and wanting to do in our community. And uh, part of that email has really uh, stuck with me, and it's not just because it related to birds. Uh, Individually, a starling is a little more than a common blackbird, right? Uh, You've seen them. They're practically everywhere, singing their little songs. Collectively, though, Starlings transform into something completely different. Together, when they are uh, in flight, uh, in flocks that number sometimes into the hundreds of thousands, they are a breathtaking wonder. 
a pulsating, swooping, living, harmonized whole, seemingly defying the laws of nature while defining nature itself. So this is called uh, murmuration. And scientists, scientists reckon that they've discovered how this phenomenon works. They measured the change in direction by one, by, they measured how a change in direction by one bird affects those around it. And discovered that one bird's movement only affects its seven closest neighbors. So each bird is dialed in, is tuned in to its seven closest neighbors. And uh, each of those neighbors' movements affects the closest seven neighbors and so on through the entire flock. Sorry, I said that a bit funny, but I think you get what I mean. Um, this is what devotion looks like in practice. It's not wooden, it's not robotic, it's not cookie-cutter living. But it is the very quality that enables the moving in one direction at one speed and the other parts in another direction at another speed. It's, I find it mesmerizing to look at. Um, but it's their devotion that enables this whole um, beautiful thing. And I've been holding this uh, picture really as a visual metaphor for us at St. Augustine's, especially as the last couple of years really continue to teach us that we're never meant to go, go it alone. Uh, we actually need each other. So again, taking our lead from the early church, who, as we see in verse 46, uh, they developed this rhythm of gathering together in the temple and, you know, in Jerusalem for worship, all together with the Israelites. It's sort of like what we're doing now. And then they would also gather together um, as the new temple, the location of God's presence on the earth, to break bread in their homes uh, all over Jerusalem. The reality is, like the murmuration of starlings in full flight, uh, we could never be in deep community with the whole flock. Uh, they say most adults have a capacity for maybe around 8 to up to 20, maybe 25 at a stretch. Um, you know, deep relationships of people that they, that they really trust and is built on trust. So again, like the, like the seven starlings and like the early church, uh, we have these smaller communities who gather midweek in people's homes called formational communities. Formational communities, uh, they're small groups of five to eight people. Jesus had 12, not even Dr. Phil is that good, uh, who meet regularly to invest into each other's lives. We break bread together, we dial into the weekly teaching together, and we pray together for one another. The whole idea is that we're supporting one another to grow and flourish in our faith. These are the kinds of places where strangers become friends and friends become family. We're seeking to practice the way of Jesus together. And I know a whole number of you, many of you are part of formational communities, which is awesome. But if uh, it's, this idea is new to you or you're new to St. Augustine's, I just want to say that this is kind of baseline stuff. This is something that we're encouraging everyone to get involved in. So if you do want to find or form a formational community, it's very easy. Just jump on our website. There's a page there. Um, any inquiries come through to me. And I'd love to just take it on me personally to do whatever I can to help you um, connect and help form these communities. I'm excited about them. I've been loving uh, what's been going on with my, with my um, community. All right, um, allow me to land uh, with this. Uh, Jesus, on the night before he was about to die, he prayed a prayer in front of his disciples. And one part of that prayer uh, went like this. 
You have sent me into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. This is what he prayed. You, Father, you have sent me into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. And that word sanctify means I devote myself. You sent me into this world, Father, to give myself away for their sake. And that is what he did. Jesus let go of the comforts of glory. For him, equality with God was not something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he descended to be born in a humble hay barn alongside the animals. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why is it that when Jesus left them, the disciples didn't lose heart, give up and go back to their day jobs? The reason they didn't get disillusioned, but instead became completely devoted, was because they were following the one who was completely devoted to them. Jesus gave himself away until he had nothing left to lose. And in response, his disciples and early followers continued to give themselves away like they had nothing left to lose. They were practicing the way of Jesus. They were continuing his very presence upon the earth. And just like we see in the church on the day she was born, when we freely give ourselves away to God, when we freely give ourselves away to one another and to the people of our world, we find that we are the freest family on the face of the earth. Let's stand uh, together.